A fish, which you can't see, deep down in the water, is kind of a symbol of peace on earth, goodwill to yourself. Fishing gives a man some time to think. It gives him some time to collect his thoughts and rearrange them kind of neat, in an orderly fashion. Robert Rourke, The Old Man and the Boy. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. That intro quote today was provided by our guest, Roger Flincham, a Virginian born and raised, a retired English teacher and outdoorsman, but mainly a fly fisherman. Roger lives on a a beautiful little piece of land that's surrounded by, you know, Virginia rolling fields. And uh, he has a pond back there and an, an old barn that I believe is from the 1800s that's, you know, peeling. And he's showed me where, uh, you know, they didn't use nails put, to put together the beams, but they would use, uh, I forgot what the word is, but they would use like wooden spikes to connect the beams. And Past that, you have the tree line, and past that, you got those Blue Ridge Mountains. You got the Shenandoah National Park back there, and uh, the the hills leading up to it. So, really, a beautiful place. This first podcast was a success because I got what the whole point of this podcast is, which is collecting folk wisdom and people's nature reverent stories. And that is exactly what I got from Roger. He shared two written stories of his, which I am honored to have here on this podcast because he has never published them. And I hope that this podcast might be some inspiration to him to get them published because they are so well done. They're so well written. And they were both, I'm waiting to know the next sentence. And I was enthralled and raptured by both of them. Um. It seems as though the theme of his stories kind of had a Southern Gothic element. They're kind of had a Poe element. There was a, it seems to be how nature, well, mainly how solitude in nature can open us up to kind of a border realm, maybe of the imagination, maybe of the supernatural, but it opens us up to pick up on things that perhaps points of view or experiences that we might not pick up if we were, you know, one in a city or we were with five people camping in the back country. But being alone opens us up to more mysterious experiences. And I'll just comment the fact that I felt that little Poe element, those pictures that we see of Poe, he looks like such a dark, depressed guy. And of course, he wrote some incredibly dark and haunting and some of the the best literature there is. But 
What's kind of less known about Poe is that those photos were taken when he was sickly towards the end of his life and that Poe loved nature. He loved hiking, which you don't really imagine reading some of the darker stories. He loved hiking. He loved nature. He loved his pet cats. And a lot of his poems were about nature and about um, love and quite the opposite of what we think of Poe. If you live in Virginia and you're in the Shenandoah, the northern Shenandoah area, and you're interested in taking one of Roger's classes, he he um, puts on some pretty awesome classes for fly fishing. It looks like they're going to reopen in the fall, perhaps with all of the uh, COVID closures and whatnot. Um, he teaches intermediate fly fishing, beginner fly fishing, and it was super helpful for me and my girlfriend and my stepfather. We all caught a fish within a few weeks of the class. The way to access that is rappce.org. So it's Rappahannock Center for Education, and all the classes are listed there. All right, thanks again for listening, and I'm excited for next week to have an herbalist on. Well, we've had to end up doing this in person. We tried about three hours ago. At two o'clock, we try to do this over the internet with Squadcast, and it, we, my, I'm not a tech guy, you're not a tech guy, and we couldn't figure out how to get your laptop with the headphones, so I got in the car and drove 40, 40 minutes on over here. <laughs> so I guess how these things go is I introduce the guest to begin with. So you're Roger, your last name Flincham, is that how you pronounce it? That's right. And I met Roger from a fly fishing class that I did with my girlfriend and my stepfather, and you are, are you retired? Yeah, I retired 10 years ago from teaching. English teacher, right? Uh, English and history teacher uh, in uh, Rappahannock County High School, little little country school with less than 300 kids. Nice. So you're a retired English teacher, woodworker. Woodworker. Fisherman, hunting, hunter, and gardener. Uh, yeah, all of those things. Anything, any, anything I'm forgetting in there? Well, you know... Uh, Living this far away from everything, you have to be a jack of all trades. So uh, uh, you, you you learn how to repair barns and work on tractors and all the other little things that come your way. But yeah, it's a, I'm, I'm living a few decades in the past compared to most people nowadays. And you grew up kind of uh, like this, right? Well, I grew up in a small town in southwest Virginia, Radford, Virginia. Uh, in 1947, I was born there, and uh, my, I was one of the very first of the baby boomers. <clears throat> we, uh, my father just got back from World War II and it says, uh, uh, fought in the islands of uh, the Pacific, Battle of Peleliu, and uh, he came back and uh, immediately, uh, within a year, uh, met and married my mother, and they started building a house. It was uh, uh, that, that time. We, we didn't have a car until it was 10 years old. Mm. And uh, we uh, just worked around and lived around our home more than traveling. We, we just didn't have that luxury. But uh, he helped build his, he, he and one other man built his, uh, my home, his home, uh, entirely by himself. Uh, they even made their own cinder blocks out of real, real cinders from a, from the coal yard where the wow. where the coal trains, How coal burning work? trains. You take uh, the, the cinders that come out of the, the firebox of a of a any anything that burns coal, but coal burning trains were what they use. And then you mix up a cement mix, you dump in the cinders in, and then they had a block, a wooden homemade wooden block, and 
you could pour four cinder blocks at a time, and you mixed up a, the right amount. You poured it in the form, and uh, by the next day, it would be you could take a hammer and knock it loose, and you had four cinder blocks. Yeah, wow. and they they did the entire house with homemade cinder blocks. Went into the woods, and uh, uh, where uh, my grandfather lived, and cut all the wood off the stump and brought it in and built the house with the wood from their own. Man, that's cool. So is he he was a um, Virginian too? Yep, he was he was born in Floyd County, Virginia. Okay, where my grandfather lived, and so I spent a lot of time in the woods of of Floyd. Uh, but uh, it was it was an interesting upbringing. I was the. Uh, yeah, you, you mentioned to me that your dad was a pretty amazing outdoorsman. Oh yeah, he was. So is, he's kind of where you found all those passions. I, I he led me along. Uh, he didn't make me do anything, but uh, but as he went along, I found out more and more about his history. Uh, he was the youngest of five children, living in a no electricity home way up in the mountains three room house seven people wow and uh, he was a young one and everybody had their jobs and he did some of the jobs around the house you know in the gardens and stuff carrying wood <clears throat> but his special job was he was uh, as the youngest he couldn't do very much heavy work and when he was about maybe eight nine he got the job of hunting for the family Wow. So he'd work some for a while, and when he got tired, uh, my grandfather would hand him a, a twenty-two rifle, which I still have, and a single-shot twenty-two, and uh, and he'd count out sh- twenty-two short cartridges into his hand, like three or four. Five was a huge fortune, but two, three, four, and send him off into the woodlot and say, bring back something for us to eat. So what, what was the main quarry, I guess? Well, squirrels and rabbits. Uh, big game was with, if you ever shot a grouse. Okay. Uh, but that was about it. Uh, by that time in history, we'd just about killed off all the deer in Virginia. Right, right. In the, in the 20s. He was born in 1920. And uh, they had they'd pretty well, there just weren't many around. So, But he'd come back and first thing uh, uh, his fat dad would ask was, would you bring back? And he'd show him a squirrel or a rabbit or whatever he had. And then he'd say, okay, let's see the cartridges. And they'd better match up. If he had three cartridges, he's supposed to bring, and he got two rabbits back, where's that other one? Missing was not allowed. Oh, wow. So he became, to make sure that he he didn't get in trouble back home, he would learn to stalk very closely. He he wanted to shoot that squirrel at, at 10 or 20 feet. He didn't go popping off at 30 yards, and he became a very good woodsman. And he did that for a long time, till he was 12 or 13, and then he, uh, he was— And no f- scope, right? Of course. Oh, no, Iron no, 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 no. He, he wanted to get as close as possible. He very seldom misses. And when I remember when he taught me how to squirrel hunt, he told me at 12 years of age, he said, Son, no, no squirrels come back to this house without being shot through the head. We don't, want to, we don't mess up meat. Mm. <laughs> so that was that was the way he was he was brought up to do. That is so cool. So, so you grew up eating all of the kind of oh yeah, well, squirrel was a regular part of my thing. Uh, whatever we could get, to, but because of the the way the the big game had been depleted, I didn't see venison very often, and I don't think my father killed a deer until he was maybe forty years old. Okay, wow. And we had to travel off to a national to a, a wildlife area, you know. A, National Forest. We sure. that. I don't even remember seeing a deer until I was in my teenage years, and uh, 
in the wild. All the time I spent in the woods, I never saw one. Occasionally, we'd see a track. There were so few of them. That's remarkable. I mean, so I guess we got right into it here, but I, I've been coming over the past few days last week and just going down to your pond in the morning, you know, there's five deer right there. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. That, and there'd been very little game control up until his birth, 20, 1920 or so. And then when the depression hit in the thirties, well, a deer was just like a walking hundred dollar bill. And uh, if you, if, a, if a track was seen or if the snow fell, Anybody who had a cartridge left was was trailing that deer down. He had very little chance of of not getting killed, and uh, so it would at that point, you know, in forties, there were not a lot of game left. But uh, but afterwards, the uh, conservation movement came in, and uh, people started buying sure more domestic meat. He, they never, I don't think they ever eat beef at their home. Uh, if you raised a beef, yeah. So to, so did did you guys? Did you guys have like chickens or anything like that, or was it all wild game? Not in, in we lived in town. Oh, okay. And so uh, it wasn't going. That wasn't happening there. But uh, my f- grandfather up in yeah. the mountain, we'd visit. One of his children would visit him every week, every weekend, and because uh, they didn't have a car, and we would come and we'd do the grocery shopping for him, and uh, the the women folk in the family would do all the laundry because there weren't any women in the family by that time. And uh, and uh, he had uh, pigs and chickens, which was what everybody raised. Uh, beef cow was considered kind of a luxury animal. Mm. And if you had beef, you'd probably sell it and use the money to buy pigs and, and eat them. So you ate a lot of pork, a lot of chicken, and not very much beef. That was special. Wow. Well, that is cool, man. I had not heard that yet. Mm. Um one thing I wanted to do with this podcast is I thought it would be interesting. So something I've noticed when moving to the country is that um, small talk in the country is usually about nature. Like I'm usually walk past people who are talking about plants, animals, and I think that's so charming. I've walked into a gas station to go buy something and I hear some old guys uh, huddled in the corner talking about how they just saw a bear this morning. Or I walked into a gas station and a guy came in in camo during hunting season and said, just tells the person behind the counter how he just, he got a coyote this morning. So it's just like hearing how the animals are such a large part of life. I thought it'd be fun with this podcast with each guest to ask them, have you like any interesting <laughs> animal sightings over the past week or so? You see anything interesting around or any new birds coming in or what? Oh, we, we always keep our eyes open here, uh, but it, you're right. Uh, People uh, in a city had just limited access and whatever. Like, I remember going to Central Park first time. And the first thing that went through my mind was, this place is worn. It's like an old carpet. Even the rocks look like they've been (laughs) worn down. It wasn't, it was natural in a way, but the proximity of millions of people had just worn it down to to just like a painting of a park. Mm -hmm. And uh, we all, and... As we drive, we're constantly watching the roadsides for. I mean, last things. time I came over, when, I, when your wife came back home, the first thing she said is, "Just saw a bear." Yep, yep. Right. I, I saw two pass uh, in front of my house about two hundred yards this summer. Uh, last summer, yeah, yeah. I saw a coyote down by the pond two weeks ago. That's cool. I have not seen a coyote yet. Uh, maybe once while uh, driving. 
and uh, we have the neighborhood eagles uh, that, that I like to watch for. Uh, oh, cool! About that, we have um, probably at least two or three. Yes. And, and when I went down the pond last time, you have these like small egrets or something. Yeah, the lessers. Oh, they are beautiful. They're lesser, uh, they're not egrets, they're uh, herons, herons. Small herons, so sorry. Less, lesser herons, they're about less than a chicken in size. And then the, the graters, uh, standing flat flat on the ground or almost four feet tall at the top of their head. Mm. They're quite, and they're, they fly a circuit around here mm. from one pond to the other, back and forth, and they... Uh, you can pretty well get, you know, you'll see the same one come in maybe once or twice a week. He, he's, he's, he's got his own little grocery areas. That is cool. And we're one of them. Yeah, a pond is always an attractor to, to wildlife. Oh, I believe it. Yeah, I wanted to tell you over at our place, so where I live, we're in a cabin, and there's, um, so my landlady owns, I don't know, I can't I've never remember if it's like 150 acres or 300, but there's multiple people living on the property in little houses. So a guy down in the pond house, um, a few nights ago, same night that we had a bunch of Airbnbers on the property that were camping, there was three sets of campers and then everyone, all the residents of the property. And one of the residents, he left the windows open on his car. (laughs) And in the morning he went out to his car and saw that the steering wheel was like worn away and there was like saliva stains all over the place and four inch black bear hairs in the window, like in the, jammed in the door. So the bear had tried to get into the car and he had no food in there, but he had a, what he's telling me, he's telling me a Reese's peanut butter cup wrapper mm-hmm. and he had Solid been, e- and he had been eating like a, um, some sloppy sandwich. So he thinks it was on his hands and then it smeared around on the steering Grass. wheel and on the door. And he even thinks he can kind of see like a foot area where the bear tried to push to fully get into the car. They're, they are uh, <laughs> something you have to be careful about when it comes to food. Uh, we had a, one of my students' family, uh, uh, the mother was in a bad habit of cooking bacon, and then the old timers never wasted the bacon grease. There was always something you could do with bacon grease. And she'd put it in a bowl and then sit it out on her porch to cool. And then... The deal was, you were, after it cooled, solidified, you brought it back in, you put it in, there was a jar that you put baking grease in, washed the dish and went on, and one day she forgot. And in the middle of the night, she heard a thumping and banging, and she went and flipped on her porch light, and a black bear had gotten through her screen door and was standing up on the uh, uh, refrigerator when she'd put the... the in bank, the house? Yeah, in, it wasn't in the house, it was on the screen porch, next <laughs> part of the house. And leaned up, and he was licking that. And then when the light came on and she opened the door, he turned and hurtled out the door and was last seen disappearing into the night with the screen door around his neck. Oh. <laughs> you just don't leave anything edible outdoors. Yeah. Uh, you don't feed your dog outdoors if you can help it. If you do, you remove the remnants because uh, they will find it. Wow, that is cool. So, so tell me what... So what do you do as someone who grows up in an age where we throw things away? What do you do with the bacon fat? Well, right now we recycle some of it, uh, uh, but uh, do you recook with it again? Oh, you can uh, a little bit, but I don't do that too much. I, I'm. Well, you said the old timers would save it. If they would save it up as a. Now we look at it as a, a consumable something to get rid of, mm-hmm. and you know, put it and go into the trash can and goes to the dump. Uh, but the old timer kept it and uh, he flavored everything with it. Mm. Uh, we use oil, cooking oils. Uh, the, uh, there was no olive oil, there was no corn oil, there was no safflower oil in the old days. They used uh, animal fats, 
almost always, uh, lard from pigs and uh, bacon. That's awesome, uh, a lard product there. And they would uh, save it up, and they usually had a crock. Like a, there would be a flour container, there'd mm-hmm. be a sugar container, there'd be a salt container, and there'd be a fat container. Mm. And that would all settle along the top of the stove. So it's, and, it's fine to be in uh, room temperature. Oh, yeah. And okay. it, would, it, would, it solidifies down uh, to a jello-like consistency. But if they were going to cook green beans, they might just take a tablespoon and in it goes. You're going to fry yeah, eggs, that. drop a little in the skillet. And everything had a little taste of bacon in the old days. That uh, is cool. A lot of the guys I follow, the big hunter guys who do a lot of bear hunting and whatnot, they do, you know, they render down the bear fat and they do something similar. Bear fat's, uh, uh has a reputation for being a great uh, treatment for leather. Put them mm. on your boots to keep heard that. to keep off uh, keep water out. Yeah, they were, there was a lot of forgotten knowledge that's going away. I, that is cool. I'm I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, uh, keeping all that that in memory. And uh, there's a uh, now a whole in cottage industry of people coming up and going back to the old ways of doing this or that or the other. Oh yeah, so for it's, sure. It's, it's it's fun to to be able to go back and remember. They have a parmesan. Oh, what? we just had a shot back there. That was that was somebody. <laughs> sighting in his gun yes by the way we're filming outside yeah uh, uh, we're doing all the corona social distancing <laughs> roger is like eight feet away and um so you're gonna hear birds and cars and gunshots <laughs> whatever so before we get take the bring this back to nature and your relationship to nature i did think it would be interesting to ask, ask each guest if they considered themselves a religious person are you a religious person? Not particularly, no. Okay. Did you grow up of any religion? Uh, my mother and father were not actively religious when I was home. When we left, uh, both of them went on uh, and became very religious. My father had an early heart attack and immediately afterward became a deacon in this church. Oh, wow. Uh, it's, uh, it affected him in that way. He became spirit very emotional uh, Interesting. Yeah, the near death made him a spiritual yeah, man. I'm sure it, it changed him physically and mentally. Interesting. But he, uh, he uh, I can remember him crying when he was uh, uh, asking blessings at a meal. Uh, mm. It changed him a mm, good wow. deal. And my mother was a regular every Sunday sure. church lady. Sure. Yeah, I was. the reason I thought to ask the question, everyone, is I just thought that um, it'd be interesting if, if people do consider themselves religious, how that... Is interaction how that is an interaction with with nature, like how it plays in with nature. Uh, I know that I've found had some quite quite spiritual moments alone while hunting in nature. So I was curious to hear if other people have had similar stuff. It is a it, it's a contemplative time. People tend to think of outdoor sports as being activity, and a great deal of it is contemplative work. Oh yes, uh, I've. Uh, if I've got a problem, that's where I often go. You know, I'll, I'll say I'm just going down to the river for a little while. Yeah, I like that. Exactly. It's like a it's a, a meditation for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm, and I usually keep a little pad or something and a pencil in my pocket. And there's been times I've sat on a rock someplace and said, oh, "Let me try that. that. That's something I hadn't thought about." Or come home, sit down, and write things down that I was thinking about while I was out there. I love that. Okay, so um, I think we can get into story time. How do you feel about that? Well, whatever you like. So you mailed me. So when I asked you to be part of this podcast, this brand new show, uh, you mailed me a story, which I somehow I have yet to get. It came back. Oh, are you serious? Marked return to sender by your landlord, I guess. 
Interesting. So yeah, like I told you, there's a bunch of houses on our property. So sometimes mail does not end up <laughs> where it belongs. Where it belongs. But is that one of the stories you're going to tell today, or you chose something I else? I could. I just don't know how much time you have to worry with these things. But I mean, uh, I think just whatever you want to tell. So the so you know, um, people have started listening to this podcast. The point of this podcast was to collect um, people's stories about nature that were meaningful to them, and that really can can open up. That's just the beginning theme. So it really, it could be anything. So I'm looking for people to tell, uh, you know, spiritual stories, meaningful stories, lessons learned, observations. It really can be anything. The point of this is just to um, ask people for reverential stories of nature. So whatever you got to share today. Uh, I've always got stories. It's the way it is with fishermen and hunters and all those folks. Uh, you sit down and tell stories and lie a little bit and establish your credentials before you go to any business. You know? Yes, make it a tall tale. Okay, well, so tall, where do we, ta- tall where? tale may not be the way, <laughs> but sometimes they're a, they stretch one's imagination a little bit. Yeah, so, I uh, I didn't I didn't have a, a quote. I was you were always looking for quotes, but one of my I read that came to me is, really struck a, a note of, of veracity was. One guy said that hunting and fishing are the last remaining private adventures for modern man. That we are so much surrounded by other people and traps of civilization, it's hard to get away from them. And and so we get used to them being around and uh, being safe and uh, you don't do anything too risky because people would not want you to, your family, your name. It's just... uh, hard to have a private adventure anymore. I if love you, that. If you go a private go, adventure. Yeah, if you want to go skiing, you know, you go to a resort full of people going skiing. And if you want to do swimming, you go to a swimming pool and go swimming. And uh, the, the class of outdoorsmen that uh, uh, that finds a private place is, is becoming smaller and smaller. Unless you've got, like, billions of dollars and you can hire a helicopter to drop you on top of a mountain and, you know, that sort of thing. But uh, for most of the private people in the world, that's what's left. Golfing, hardly, please. Yeah, hardly please. a natural <laughs> thing anymore. Even uh, you know, motorcycles go everywhere. I get t- tired of that. But uh, but I I like that feeling of getting away. Yes. And uh, for me... Uh, and I've noticed I can even be in the tiniest place. You know, my mom has only got 30 acres. Maybe, mm-hmm. it's, maybe it's 40. And just, you know... Once I get into the tree line and I'm tucked in, I feel like I could be alone in the middle of a wilderness. Yeah, I, I do the same thing. One of the reasons I like fishing, and, and fishing is where a lot of us start because you can start really, really young. You know, you don't hand, the six, hand a six-year-old a shotgun and head out into the boonies much, but you can, you can go to the water. Any kid sees water, he immediately goes to it. So... Uh, I started out fishing first before I ever thought about hunting, and uh, and uh, there's something about approaching the edge of it. And then for me, it came down to fly fishing and small streams was the thing that I really enjoy the most. I've tried a lot of different things, but that one is my go-to. And I have a little river, the Thornton River, runs right in front of my property, about 400 yards out. And I can walk down there in 10 minutes and be fishing five minutes later. But uh, but there's something about one, you mentioned going into the tree line. Mm-hmm. You walk, I'll have to walk across a hayfield, unnaturally empty, flat, homogenous. 
and then you hit the edge of the tree line and all of a sudden things are different. You're one, you just the sun's not on your head anymore and uh and it gets a little cooler. Then you get to the edge and you look and the river is always lower. It's carved out a channel. And so as you drop down into that, you know, you get exact insulation. You can't hear anymore. You can't see anything. Only vertically. And uh, and then you step in the water and it's cooler. And uh, you find yourself sitting and standing in the water and it's maybe 15 degrees cooler than it was in the, in the field right above you. It's like a whole different microclimate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then when you finish fishing and you come back out, it's like opening an elevator door and all of a sudden you're back in the office again. It's a... Uh, it's a, a place I don't like to leave sometimes. Mm, I believe it. And I have a lot of river. And the interesting thing is for the last, I don't know, 20 years, I'm not sure I've ever seen another fisherman when I was in the river. Wow. Used to be there were. Sometimes if you go by somebody who has a home next to the river, you might see evidence of fishing. But as an a, a, a individual out in the water fishing, unless I brought them with me, I don't is that because you're going to places that are hard access or what? No, it's just that now we, there's so much electronic, yeah, other types of things to entertain ourselves with. It, it's just too much trouble, and people aren't there. So I find myself, you know, stumbling along and having a wonderful time. And sometimes well, I that, can hear that. That uh, that makes me think of the reason I like to hunt. I by myself mm-hmm. is because I feel like I'm in a dream or something. I feel like I'm in this my own. You're in your own little universe. Yep, you're having a and and when you have the and then when you have an encounter with an animal, it almost feels like a it it feels almost surreal, like a like a, a spirit or a ghost. Like sometimes I feel like the animals are are as elusive as a ghost, and when you get to see one, it's almost like shockingly surreal. Especially if you've been sitting there for like eight hours, and then a fox walks through, you're like, my lord. It's a it takes some getting used to. You're a little bit young yet, and. Uh, and uh, you probably be having a stronger reaction than I would. Right. But, I, but I've found that one of the things I liked about the business of fishing is that it's doesn't distract from the wilderness. Sitting quietly, not making a motion for hours in the woods, it's unnatural. It's a way to kill deer, but it's not a natural way to, to, to do it. If you just walk through the woods... Uh, you make enough noise and thrash that things move out of your way. But when I get in a river, I find that the river's moving. I'm moving slowly with it. And uh, uh, I'm a fly fisherman most of the time. I, I, that's a, there's motion involved, but it's not violent. And I find that very quickly uh, the animals don't seem to bother. I've seen you know, deer and everything you can imagine. I haven't seen a bear yet from the water, but... Uh, Mm. I've had I've had beaver in the water mm, with me. That. I've had an otter in the water with mm. me, and they check me out to see what I am. They'll cruise by and cock an eyeball, but something about a man river he's not a he's not as a threat to them like a a man on land is. Oh, that's fascinating, and it, it makes that's for an me, interesting observation. In, interesting feeling, but you can't be too loud. You can't be too uh, splashy. Just moving quietly. So do you have a fishing story that was particularly... Oh, I've got lots of them, but I, I did have one you, you might might be able to tolerate. Yeah, always, please. I, I always do the shortest stuff. Please. So I've been thinking, because I'm not quite sure how I'm going to have my guests do this, that they <laughs> we can talk it, they can read it. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't yeah. even really matter. I think however I'll, is best for the, for the, for the guests. I'll read this one. Okay, cool. Just, just for Beautiful. the... Beautiful. Uh, it's entitled uh, Fishing New Water. 
Homeowners are comfortable. You know what to expect and pretty much what to do. But a new stream has a strong charm. For even a very skilled fisherman, surprises are guaranteed and stupid mistakes are unavoidable. These are both good things, but sometimes you get a good shock and that's the best of all. It doesn't matter how good a fisherman you are. You need shocks and twists and jolts to make it sport instead of just a hobby or pastime. It's a bonus if, just for a second, there is a strong hint of danger or disaster. Fishing shouldn't be miniature golf. Home waters can sometimes be too familiar to deliver the shiver. A neighbor pointed me to a section of a small local bass river I hadn't tried yet. After dinner one July evening, I parked at the dead end of an old steel bridge and, like all good fishermen, leaned on the railing and watched for fish. There were a few bluegills and a fallfish hanging in the weak current or loafing through a side eddy. There was a big stone cliff and a deep pool showing downstream and heavily wooded banks and midstream boulders upstream. There's always charm and uncertainty. I took the downstream cliff and pool. The four weight and poppers took four or five bluegills and none were over six inches. Looking downstream, the river widened and showed bright and sandy. I could hear a lawnmower running. It didn't look too promising so late in the afternoon, so I went back to the bridge, which was still in sight. Ten minutes later, I knew the river wouldn't yield much. Too shallow. Just not enough water to shelter a good bass population. Oh, there might be a 12-incher every 100 yards, but not really worth the effort. I fished upstream on towards sunset, catching a few small panfish, until it began to go on to real dusk. I turned and waded downstream, catching the odd fish close to banks and tree roots or pockets under the bank, as the July evening got steadily dimmer over the river. I turned the last corner and saw the bridge 75 year yards away. I began to think about the rest of the evening, a cool drink, a hot shower. Then the wolf stepped out on a gravel spit. I froze in shock. At 25 yards range, it was perfectly clear. Standing sideways to me, drinking, a female gray wolf. She didn't see me yet. Every bit of my reasoning brain was calmly saying, it can't be a wolf. They don't live in Virginia. It's an unusually shaded German shepherd, or maybe a crossbreed. It's a pet from that house a few hundred yards from the stream. A lower brain portion was talking in a louder tone. That is a wolf, just like the ones in the zoo and the magazines. It's a miracle. It's dangerous. Don't move. So I didn't move. Then very slowly, the animal lifted her head and looked upstream. There was no reaction at all except a steady, yellow-eyed gaze directly at my face. Somehow, I expected her to bolt up the bank and away, but she didn't move. In an excessive act of bravery, I retrieved my fly line that I'd left trailing. Her head dropped, and she slowly stepped into the stream and began to cross directly below me. She never quite stopped looking at me. I thought she would go to the other bank and into the bushes. She didn't. She turned slowly, wading directly to me. At 30 feet range, I spoke to her. Something like, hello, girl. Good day. What you doing? Good girl. She didn't stop. She didn't change course. As the last few feet between us shrank away, 
My good old reasoning brain was saying, see, she's a pet. But she wasn't wearing a collar, and there was no collar mark on her neck fur. When her nose touched my leg, I put a hand on her head, and she stopped moving, except for her tail. The touch was only for five or ten seconds. Then she looked up, made eye contact, and then slowly walked out of the stream and disappeared into the darkening timber and brush. I decided it was okay to breathe some more. Certain clenched muzzles began to relax. Certain bodily urges manifested themselves. I cast again and, waiting a little quicker, cut two more blue kill before I climbed up the bridge path to my car. Somehow it all seemed pretty silly as the key turned and lights flashed on and the radio started mid-song and too loud. The new stream wasn't a disappointment. There were new problems to solve and new water to analyze, and there was a shock. I told my wife, who was vaguely interested, she had not been there alone in the dark. I didn't drive by the farmhouse to look for a dog. Who would trade a wolf for a dog? Reason isn't everything. The logical answer to every mystery is not always the best solution. I saw a wolf. And you really think it's a wolf? No. I'm sitting here in my house. I'm sitting with all the logical reasons in the world to believe that it was a, a dog. But when you're alone sure. by yourself, sure. dark's coming on, the lower part of your brain says... It's a wolf. Wolf. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I do enjoy uh, that idea that when I'm alone, and as I get older, I'm be 73 next week, uh, two weeks, but I, uh, I'm thinking in terms of, you know, I got to be a little more careful with myself. Uh, mm. There was a time when I didn't have any fear of falling down in the water. Or, mm, sure. Uh, I, I, that's no problem. But uh, now I, I can see myself with a broken arm or a broken leg or something uh, a mile from the car or, and, uh, or a mile from where I need to get out of the water. Uh, it could be very, very difficult. So I'm, I'm I'm a little more careful than I was before, but there's something there always been there about your, your whatever happens, it's yours to deal with. Mm. And uh, I know back to the wolves though. I know that they actually are some. I think in North Carolina. Yeah, red wolf. Red wolf. Okay. They uh, they let, let a few of them loose. Okay, cool. But uh, that 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 sensation of what, what is that? You know, a little. Apprehension of danger possible being there. That makes me think of someone I listened to, um, Joe Rogan, the podcaster. I've heard him say that when he was in a big, a big open area, that he mistook a squirrel. He thought it was a wolf, and just the perspective, and obviously being mm. in the surreal, you know, nature. You just are in a different mindset. You're in, exactly, you're in another wavelength. Another mindset. I, uh, I once as a young teenager. I thought for sure that I'd found myself a black bear when I was squirrel, and it turned out to be a black Angus cow lying down in the bushes next to the field. <laughs> and I was sitting there wondering what to do. Should I do this? Should I do that? Oh, my gosh. And uh, she lifted her head up, and phew, the black bear just disappeared. Yes. Uh, I like that. You're always looking. Every stick's a snake. Oh, yeah. You mean, my girlfriend's always saying that. Uh, and you think about even wading in water, you know, any step can be, uh, can put you down. Um, crossing a log across a stream, you know, there's little things there all the time. And uh, I like that not being overprotected is a good thing. Well, that goes back to your story about the adventure. You never quite know. Yeah, man. 
I, I did have to get one quote in here, though. I, I was yeah, please. wanted to one. Yeah, so so I want to tell the, the listeners that another part of the point of this podcast is I think it would be really interesting for me because I have been so moved by certain um, pieces of writing about nature that I wanted each guest to bring some writing that moved them and share share theirs. Yeah, I loaned you some Robert Rourke, which I always, oh, yeah. I always try to get, get him uh, circulating. He does a good job of... It's by my bedside, and I've started to read it. <laughs> I love the little illustrations at the beginning of each oh, chapter. Yeah, they are, they're beautiful. But, uh, but I talked about being fishing was an earliest sort of adventure for a lot of people. And, uh, and uh, it brought this, this... When I saw this quote, it kind of rang a bell. It's a... It's a it's a little riddle for you. Why does a Frenchman kiss a lady's hand? I don't know. He's got to start somewhere. Not where he wants to go, That's but good. he's got to start somewhere. And uh, fishing is, is like that. It's, uh, it's It leads you on. And uh, so if you're a cane pole and a, and a, a bobber and a bluegill at the pond, it's, it's, it's kissing the lady's hand. You have other things. Entry. You have other things in mind, but you got to start somewhere. You got to enter somewhere. And uh, fishing. You can't just give up before you even start. Fishing did that to me. And, and there's an old saying that when you start fishing, first you want to catch a fish. You know, little kid, he wants to go down, he catches a bluegill, and he comes running to the house with it. Mom, look what I caught. Uh, then by the next day, he said, oh, I'm going to catch a lot. I caught one. I'm, I'm, and then finally he starts counting them and counting, I caught a dozen, I caught 20. Uh, and we turn into fish counters. Then you want to catch a large fish. That's next. And then years, it may be years before you catch large enough fish to make you happy. And then you start thinking about difficult, unusual fish. Uh, I didn't get on to bonefish, which are a spectacular fly rod fish uh, down in the Florida Keys until I was maybe 50. But I, it's wonderful. Uh, and there's fish I've never gotten to yet. You know, there's some in Kamchatka over in Russia that I'd love to see. Uh, so you're now you're in the realm of the exotic. Yeah, you're getting out there. And then the, the, the last part of that corollary is when you get a certain age, a certain amount of experience and time, you're just happy to go back and catch fish, just like that first one. And maybe the luckiest of us don't even care if we catch it. We just want to be in that place. Mm, beautiful. And uh, but that's uh, that's right. true. And, and you watch people. Some people get stuck though. I've, I've known people who uh, they get stuck in a certain phase. Never, yeah, you know, never, never got over catching a lot of fish. That's interesting. I've heard very similar things about about hunting. Yep. Oh, you know, yeah. First, get something. Next, fill your bag limit. After that, trophy. And then after that, it's almost not even get anything. It's just about. Yeah. Uh, you know, being in love with nature and, and helping the conservation and, you know, all that kind of more. Yep, yep. Uh, there's a, a lot to that. Uh, and it's a framework. Sport in the outdoors is a framework. It's a reason for being there. A lot of people have noticed and, and commented on the fact that, uh, that a human in, outside in the natural world benefits greatly. Oh, yeah. But putting a, a rod or a gun in his hand changes his attitude, sharpens his senses, focuses him more. Even if he's not serious about it, even mm. if he's not seriously hunting, not seriously fishing, it's just there as a possibility. Mm. And a man walking through the woods with a with a with a gun 
even if he's not actively hunting, he's he all of a sudden he'll find himself moving quieter, not moving as much, mm. stopping in places where he's sheltered. It's just a different attitude. Mm. And I guess for the luckiest people, uh, they finally get to the point where all the all the extra gear really isn't necessary. I haven't mm-hmm. quite got there. So why do you think that some people get stuck in those phases? I don't know. I think it's, it's, it's maturity, some level of maturity or what? Who knows what the needs of an individual are. Mm. But uh, but I, I've, I'm, I've known people uh, who, uh, who go every year some far exotic location. And um, I know one, one guy I knew, I think he went three times to, to, to try to kill a grizzly bear. Mm. And uh, finally did and had it mounted and brought it home. The whole thing ended up eh, fifty, seventy-five thousand dollars mm, wow. for that. And it, it constantly does that. And then plenty of people who, you know, I love to go get an elephant, you know. Uh, mm. uh, I'm just waiting for somebody to try to kill a whale with a bow and arrow. Now, this, <laughs> how far can I push it? Yeah. How far can I push it? Yeah. There, there's that attitude. But uh, right now, I, just lately, I've had an urge to uh, to take out my fly rod and take off the fly reel and just tie a little line to the tip of it, catch me some crickets or something, and wade the river like I used to when I was a little kid. I love that. Maybe catch me a, a lunch and throw a few sticks together and sit down on the side of the bank and so when you're little that's that's big big stuff you know, you, i caught my lunch <laughs> yo i love that and that that's basically what i'm trying to do is just any anything for food how, how do you cook those little pan fish because there's such so little meat on them right i've caught a few out of a pond yeah they well there's the bluegills i mean right? yeah well you you can try to fillet them, but you're eating basically eating postage stamps. Yes, uh, that's that's where I went wrong. What I what I I do is uh, clean them out, head and tail goes, and then I uh, roll them in the, in uh, egg whites and and some panko breadcrumbs, and and fry them. And then when you decide it's time to eat, you take your knife and you cut right down the center of the backbone, and then. The meat will just open up like a butterfly. Yeah, butterfly. Okay. And then you just eat it from underneath the skin. Uh, you start hacking away at them, you get half the the nutrition goes away. Okay, perfect. I'm gonna try that next time. Uh, so, but it's the yeah. I, I remember catching my first dinner and beside the river and scraping together a few sticks and starting a fire and cooking it over half raw. But you know, you yeah, I was a outdoorsman. I was a woodsman. I don't know, 12 or whatever, <laughs> but uh, it was big stuff. It was big stuff. But then from that, some people veer off in other directions. So, so as an as an English teacher, um, is there are there any outdoor books that you really would want to recommend to the listeners? I often, uh, I always tell them to read Robert Rourke. Yeah. Uh, he's a, not in very good odor in a lot of ways because he wrote about Africa and he wasn't uh, yes, the most, yes. you know, it wasn't as... Mostly, he wasn't a racist, as we phrase it today. But he certainly uh, saw the natives as not not the same as as the white people. And there, I, I have a tendency to collect old uh, uh, old classic books. I like to read the old ones from the eighteenth hundreds. Mm. I have a small collection of antique sporting literature. I I love to read the original people. I like Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, sure, he was a great outdoorsman. My favorite president, even though I didn't agree with his politics particularly, uh, but uh, but uh, he, he a great uh, 
founder of a lot of national parks, national forests. What do you find interesting about reading those old books from the 1800s? It just seeing checking their attitudes toward game and mm. and, and the world. And, uh, and what do was, you what do you glean from that? Well, I, I see a lot. I, I can see how we ended up where we are. Where quantity of game killing, uh, huge strings of fish killed. Uh, for a lot, only recently has England, for example, in the last few decades, even allowed catch and release fishing for trout. For for they said if you catch it, you have to kill it and eat it. If there's a two, two two trout limit on this this river and you catch first two casts, you catch two fish, you go home. And they find the whole idea of catching and releasing and continue as being just a unnatural act. Sure. And then and, I guess at the same time that makes the fish depleted a lot faster. Yep. And, and right. Yeah. There's no. There's virtually no public water in England to, to fish for uh, for trout. It's all been detroutified and uh, and now it's uh, private and uh, you can go for three hundred dollars a day and. Uh, and fish, but uh, it, it is interesting to see and to, to see what it was like, how much game there was, what what uh, what was out there prior to town. Scarcity is a variable thing during mm. time in history, and it was interesting to see what they they found easy to find. Sure, occasionally you find where they just made things up too. Uh, uh, I read one about a Frenchman who told about how he saw the great ostrich in the American West. <laughs> Tall tales. The, yeah, the, uh, and the camel, the wild camels of the deserts of the south of Arizona, which weren't there. That was not true. Uh, we all lie a little bit. Yeah, there. I mean, when you go home, you know, go back to Europe or something, get some amazing <laughs> story to tell. Who knows? That's fun. I have a lot. Uh, and I have my collection of short stories. That I, I, some I go back and I reread time and time again. And that's uh, uh, well. I need to be put in the right uh, frame of mind. One of the reasons I gave you uh, the old man and the boy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's work. When I first read that, I identified strongly with the boy. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh, that's me. You know, as you. a novice, three-year hunter, the young and learning yep. how. I'm basically there. And now at 72, 73 soon, I see myself as the old man. And I reread it again. It's a whole different story when you're reading it from the point of view of, of that, that the older guy who's seeing the light starting mentoring to go down. The, mentoring the boy. Turning it over to the boy and walking away. Fascinating. Yeah. That's uh, so cool. And there's a there's a book in my library there, and it's a short story called uh, The River God. And it's about a little boy in England, and he wants to become a fisherman, and he goes away on a, with his family on a trip someplace and there's a there's a stream there and he has his you know five dollar rod and he gets in there and manages to actually hook an, an actual salmon and of course the salmon just ravaged his rod and broke everything up and uh, all of a sudden out of the bushes a uh, <clears throat> big old timey 1890s bush, just like you, big, mm -hmm. big mustache, you know, comes out of the out of the weeds to his rescue, and he uh, comforts him a little bit and says, you know, that wasn't really the right rod for this, and he starts to pull in and says, well, I believe that fish is still on there, and so he ties the the knot onto his, and they land the fish, and the boy gets his first trout, and he first salmon, at first salmon, oh. And it was he. He calls this guy the River God, and then the man took him under his wing and 
gave him a decent rod to, to use for trout, and they exchanged Christmas cards until finally the uh, old guy died, and uh, he read about it in the paper. But the, he was, I, I identified with the boy when I first read it. Now I identify with the, you know, with the old man. I know, I read that one. Because it was in, you gave me a big book of short of sto- short stories by different authors yep. that were all about fishing, and that was in there. That one, it did, you change your attitude, and I'm no longer trying to to fill a pickup full of fish anymore. Yeah, I believe I, it. I don't keep fish more than once, once or twice a year, and uh, uh, I release just about everything. Did you want to tell another story? I don't know if you're ready for any more story reading here. This takes a long time. It's up to you. This one deals with. Uh, once again, you're, you're, what happens to you mentally when you're beautiful by yourself? And Frank, all of us, no matter when we're doing things, we look around to see if anybody's watching, to see. You know, there's something about knowing you're being witnessed. It keeps you honest. Oh, I, that is beautiful that you said that because I think about that a lot. Like I was just in the National Forest trying to get a, my second turkey ever. I got one earlier this season of Jake, and I was trying to get a Tom out there. And I saw, a, a, as I was heading out, I saw a turkey on the road. So then I'm thinking, well, I'm going to go into the, well, it was on private land, but on the other side was all public. And I was like, well, I'm going to go a hundred yards or so into the woods. And just having to think, am I too close to the road? Like, what's the law? You know, no one's watching me, but they kind of are like, you know, yeah, there's expectations. Yes. So it's like, what's, what are the rules? Like, where should I be here? We, uh, I want to get that turkey. I want it to come over the road, but I also don't want to do something stupid that's going to ruin my life or a few years of my life or anything like that. violate your own personal... Yes, my personal morals or lose my license or anything kind of like that. Yep. it's We always do that. Somebody once said that uh, character is illustrated by what you do when nobody's looking. Yes. And uh, uh, the hunting and fishing sports, outdoor thing, there's always ways to cheat. There's always ways to do it a less honorable way. And I think, and that there is something I'm learning through hunting because there's nothing else I partake in that is so intense with, you know, life and death. So what you're doing when no one's watching and it has to do with killing, it's like, this is heavy duty. Who am I? You know, what kind of a person am I? Yeah, I, I've, I've gone in and out of hunting over the years, hunt for a while and then I say, you know, I'm feeling a little bad about it sometime and stop. Mm. And then maybe five years later, I'll say, I miss something. So I'll go back into, and, but fishing has never had that effect on me. Yeah, sure, sure. It's the least bloodless of all the blood sports. Yes, sure. Unless, of course, you're dealing with bluefin tuna or something. Sure. But let me try one more here. All righty. Let you get home to dinner eventually. Uh, this is called Homestead Trout, and uh, it's about fishing up in the national park. Uh, so, so for the people listening, we live basically at the top of the Shenandoah National Park. And what, can you see it from here? Yeah. From this property? Okay. Mm-hmm. So one mountain range over, basically. The winter of 2008-09 was a hard one, both weather-wise and personally. There's no better harbinger of better times than the first trout trip of the spring. I could have made it in March, but where I wanted to go was kind of high altitude for Virginia. Easter was early, and I could get off on a Friday and probably beat any other angler to this stream. 
The walk was downhill along the side of a ridge for almost two miles, stepping over the headwater spring on the way down the trail. The nagging thought kept growing that I would have to climb the same number of steps uphill at the end of the day, and the two miles would seem like three. There were too many easier streams. I was pretty sure I'd get the stream by myself. I deserved it. The walk down was barely spring, a few buds on trees and sprigs of green along the headwater spring, to the first redwood and dogwood blossoms where the trail dropped down to fishing water. Leaves were too much to hope for, but the leaf buds were swelling and the maples were ready to pop if the weather was good enough for two days. I changed soles from rubber to felt. One of the most satisfying little rituals of the year is the streamside preparation of the fly fisherman. Waiter or hippers on and adjusted, set up the rod, string the line, check the vest, check the fly boxes, choose the first fly and tie it on, apply floatant, maybe bug spray or suntan lotion, drink a water, check the time, sunglasses, step into the stream and false cast to the first spot, pray for a fish on the first float. It almost never happens, it didn't this time either. This is wild brook trout country, and the first fish didn't show up until the second pool. It was small, and I missed it. But the next fish was an eight-inch adult brookie, and it made the day official. It came from behind a submerged rock in a mid-pool run. The two-weight Scott rod let me imagine him to be bigger, but eight-inch brookies are solid fish up here. Just being there and going through the rituals and attempts are not enough. The living fish is necessary. The connection is necessary. I've never been able to resist holding the fish and feeling the cool, solid, rubbery muscle. I switched small dry patterns from Parachute Adams to Mr. Rapidan and even Royal Trude. They like them small, but not much else matter. Pool by pool and riffle to pocket, the morning stretched on until a satisfactory number of successes and disappointments established that the world was on track. I hadn't lost the ability to catch the little jewels that the stream had not lost the ability to produce. I could relax and enjoy the day. I must admit that I hadn't been noticing much scenery at first. A curious tunnel vision prevailed from first cast to the magic relaxing point where you notice you're thirsty and one wading shoelace needs to be tied. There was a suitable height rock near the right bank where I sat and tied the lace. I checked the time and figured maybe 150 more yards of fishing before I'd have to turn and go downstream, then up that long ridge to the car, at least an hour and a half climb. In the old days, I used to bushwhack across the ridge or so and intersect the trail part way up the slope. But in my early 60s, I find age has made it wiser to take the easier but longer route. As I worked up the last section, the terrain flattened some and I realized I was fishing through an old mountain farm, abandoned at least 70 years ago, maybe more, when the Shenandoah National Park was established and all the residents were brought out and evicted. There was nowhere to go but down the mountains to the valleys for them. Few of the mountain people ever left the shadows of those mountains and always remember their leaving like exodus from those old family Bibles that were the central features of most of their households. From the look of this high little homestead, it must have been a tough living. The few usable acres were twisted, small, rocky sections where a little corn could be grubbed out. I'm sure there was a sizable vegetable garden somewhere close, and a log pen for a hog, plus some uh, pole corral to keep the family mule that did the hauling and plowing and probably ate half of what they raised. 
There might be a still site up a feeder creek or near a spring. There would be a rock platform for the boiler and maybe a copper coil. Corn whiskey was easier to carry out of the hollows than the corn was, and it brought a better price. Any unsold merchandise was a comfort, especially in the dark hollow winters, I imagine. As I fished through the old homestead section, I found myself at the downstream edge of a sizable pool. Gradually, I realized it wasn't natural. The farmer or the children had rolled rocks in to deepen the pool for a water supply or a wading pool. The fish approved. I caught three from the pool before I sat on the edge of the dam to take a drink of warm water from the bottle in my vest. As I sat looking over the old homestead, I kept trying to piece the features together. I found the old hand-built roadway near the stream and the rock piles where cropland had been improved. I was looking for the cabin site, but most of the cabins had been burned to keep the mountain families from returning when the soldiers and park rangers weren't looking. I gradually made out the old path from the pool to the cabin. I finally found the cornerstones and two upright posts that may have been a fence section corner or gate. The cabin would have been about 15 by 20 feet at most, square chestnut logs with a stone fireplace, probably with mud for mortar. The chimney stones lay in a long pile in the middle of the foundation, still black from the fire now 70 years ago. I figured this pool was as good a turnaround point as any. Twenty or so brookies caught and released made it officially spring. The fishing edge was off and I could think about the trip back to the car. To ease the walk out, I retraced the mountain road through the old field and by the cabin site. Nothing much was left. They weren't the type of people to leave much behind. But under the litter, I saw something white. It was a broken piece of plate, the only human artifact I could see. The mountain had just about retaken everything, even turning the odd jonquil left into part of the landscape until you realized it wasn't a natural plant there. I wasn't sure why, but I picked up the little triangular piece of white plant and slipped it into a vest pocket. I bring a, a little stone back from each fishing trip and make a rock garden from them. The day will come when I can't climb in and out of these hollows, and I'll have to sit and remember the trips by looking at the stones. The little plate piece would be easy to remember. It didn't take five minutes to walk through the whole mountain farm end to end. From what I'd seen, it was perhaps two miles from the nearest other cabin site. As the shadows started reaching across the hollow floor, I wondered how lonely and quiet it must have been, and if the mountain stream and wildlife were enough to make up for the isolation. The history of the mountain people says it was more than enough. Virtually none wanted to leave. Many of the hollows have small family graveyards that are cleaned up every spring. I've never seen the work being done, but the results keep the mountain hollows still human, not just a park area, not wilderness. Three hours of fishing upstream was only 20 minutes walking down the old wagon road to the crossing and the start of that long uphill pull to the car. At the crossing, there were no new boot prints. I was alone on the watershed like I had hoped. But as usual, I felt a little like a trespasser and half expected someone to call out hello and ask what I was doing on their property. At the trail crossing, I pulled the bottled water from under the rock at the first pool where I'd stashed it on the way upstream. A cold drink to hydrate myself for the climb was a nice treat while I changed back to rubber soles and packed the little rod, stored the dry flies, packed up the water bottle and any scraps. The original mountain folk had a right to leave a broken plate or a plow or whatever. The rest of us don't. The watch said 4.15 and it was time to pay the piper.
At 61, the climb was a dearer price than when I was first started climbing these mountains in my 20s. I would fish more if it were easier terrain. But if it were easier, there'd be a beaten path across the stream and beer cans and fire pits and Twinkie wrappers. I'm still willing to pay the price for a little while longer before I give these hollows up to another generation. Maybe they won't be interested in these little hollows. As always, I started the day thinking about the fish and ended thinking about the people. The switchback trail section up to the riding trail seemed a little steeper than I remembered. For the fourth or fifth time, I promised myself I'd do more walking during the winter and lose the pounds the doc keeps pointing out to me. I was stopping every couple of hundred yards to blow and look out over the hollow. An hour and a half began to look optimistic for a return trip. It once was an easy hour pull. As I passed above the old cabin site far below, I thought I heard voices behind and below me. Hikers or maybe horseback riders were probably coming up the trail. I got up and kept moving. My vanity wouldn't be cake being caught puffing on a stump. If they passed me, at least I'd be moving. But the voices faded. Twice more I heard them, and I'm sure they were the voices of children, playing and calling before they faded away. As slowly as I climbed, I was surely I'd be overtaken, but I wasn't. When I reached a cross trail, the voices finally stopped. Somehow I thought of the broken plate piece in my vest pocket and the children who ate from it and the way their voices would sound echoing around those hollows. Surely they'd climb and chase around the hillsides and play in the pools of the stream. It wasn't just suffering and work on those farms. Almost every hollow had its children and their voices. If a person could have sailed across those hollows at ridgetop level back in the old days, just low enough to hear, half of the hollows would have been ringing with the music of children. I sat and waited quite a while at the top of the hollowing. No one ever came up that trail behind me. The thought grew that I was hearing the ghost voices of long-ago mountain children at play. Maybe I had disturbed them walking through their farm, waiting in their pool. Maybe they woke up when I took the last little bit of their lives out in my pocket. I'm not a superstitious man at heart, but it pleases me to think that maybe something of the human spirit stays when the body leaves. Perhaps these spirits usually rest quietly, but choose to briefly visit or speak or look again at the places they loved. Perhaps they are beyond us now, waiting. They may know that some of us share how they felt about these places, and for their own reasons, they speak to us in faraway voices and echoes, and then they wait for us to join them. Their time and reasons are their own. When I finally decided it was time to go, I finished walking the last half mile of the car, an hour and 45 minutes, a new record for slow. As I packed the rod, vest, waiter, and shoes into the car trunk, I reached for the sunglasses case from my vest pocket, but it was gone. Probably hooked out by a branch on the trail. Maybe. I pulled out the cracked white plate fragment and looked back down the trail. I began to feel a little guilty for having it. I think next spring I'll go back and replace it where I found it. Maybe once more I'll hear the children. Or maybe not. They have their own time and reasons. They gave me a gift once. They can wait, so can I. And there are always fish to be caught in the sparkling, leaping stream, in that dark hollow of those iron-hard eternal mountains where the spirits of the children rest and sometimes speak to those who listen.
I love that so much. I have a book of Virginian folktales and the ghost story is like a huge part of that. Oh yeah. I love that. Did well, you ever I, go back to look for your glasses? I've been back. No luck? I uh, I never heard the voices again. And on the cool, rational side, did you, I'm did you sure ret- I can find a rest- another way to think of it. Did you return the piece? Yep. You put the piece back? Wow. But it's a... Uh, you don't think about that with five people around you. No. When traveling in a group, things like that come to you when you're alone and you're not burdened by... What would people think? What would people say? I'll just keep my mouth shut. I love that. Do you believe in ghosts? Hmm? Do you believe in ghosts? Don't know. No, don't know. I haven't met one yet. But, I've uh, had some pretty weird experiences, some civil war on the civil war fields in Manassas. It, uh, there are times when your mind can, oh, yeah. can uh, put it all together and come up with an unpleasant sort of answer to your question. <laughs> I, I love that story because I think that's what's going to happen a lot is I'm asking these people for these nature stories and it connects to human stories. And I love yeah. that. Yeah, well, we can't, we can't allow ourselves to think that we aren't natural. Yes. We are, our culture is increasingly not natural, but yes. we aren't. And uh, uh, strip, and maybe you see a lot of these television programs about people going back to the woods and uh, survival type things. And it, no, it's because we're pining for it or longing we, for we, it. We, we're interested in it. We don't know. And uh, um, there's a rare person now who knows what it's like to, to, to walk a mile or start a fire. Or It's just not in our normal day. We've, we've made ourselves into something a little bit weaker than we ever were in our dependence. I had a quote someplace, but I'm trying to remember the phrasing of it. But it said uh, it was about hunting and the guy said the prey and the predator need each other mm. without the predator the prey becomes too numerous dies of disease mm. without the predator without the prey the predator dies but if you take them away from each other like humans have done if you if you remove them all together the deer turn into something, just a yard animal, just a pet. Mm, totally. They lose their majesty and the magic. W- and the wolf becomes a dog. Yes. But what about people? We've lost the predators. We are our own predator. And what are we becoming? Well, I would even say our predatory nature comes out in different ways. We, uh, we fear nothing except ourselves. Mm. And it's, that is not an unhealthy, that is not a healthy kind of thing. And uh, being alone in a natural habitat, you sometimes realize, well, maybe I am not the, the, the peak of the food chain. Yeah. Well, that's another element of the reverence for it, right? Oh, yeah. Is the yeah. element of fear to it. There's a you little know, touch. Sleeping by yourself in a surprise. tent in, in, that, in one of those hollows, the national forest, bear hunting and hearing, looking out your tent, there's two bears. I know they're black bears. It's not a grizzly, but it's still a little unnerving. Oh, yeah. And every now and then you hear a story about a camper found dead in a campsite or they find their bones 10 years later or where they fell off a rock someplace. Uh, it's necessary to have a degree of danger in, in your life. And uh, and in our attempt to that, protect that goes, ourselves, we've gotten maybe too safe. That goes back to your quote about the adventure. Yep. The, uh, the last private adventure left. And it's shrinking. 
Right. In some ways. Right. And uh, I was delighted in some ways when I found out that I could fish all over Virginia in small streams and never see another fisherman a lot of times. Mm-hmm. It's, it feels, you know, wow, I've got all this place to, fi- to fish. But it always, always makes me sad that those streams are lined by. Hey, kid, well, I'm coming with you, man. A kid sitting up there in the woods. You're going to houses. teach me. And I'll pass it on to a few folks. Vivian wants to get, my girlfriend Vivian, she wants to get into fishing too. You know, we need another food source now that uh, hunting seasons are done, the trapping season's done. I'd like to keep on going with the wild food. So I will definitely come to you for some apprenticeship or mentorship. Oh, we're we'll always, always ready to teach. Yeah. That's a, that's the, they often try to come up with what's the first profession. And what was the first job that humans ever did? I thought, don't they say it's prostitution? Yeah. They always <laughs> come up with something. They always come up with something, but the truth is it's teaching. And, sure. Uh, and wow. Yeah. We, you, and you teach, and you teach your own children, and then through other uh, uh, specializations of of, of, of uh, labor, we we learn to uh, to do it. To what we are now as a totally dependent, totally interdependent group, and uh, and then we all go and we turn on our televisions and we watch the last Alaskans. My and, favorite show ever. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say we should wrap up now, but I do want to say that that is. Maybe my all-time favorite show. And again, like your last story, it's set in nature, and the animals are incredible, and the environment is incredible, but it's a human story. You see the man who has, in the last Alaskans, there's a, a trapper in his 60s. He's got cancer. Over three seasons, you watch him slowly die. And as he's dying, he's becoming more spiritual and more passionate and talking about his love for his family and his love for place. And it's, it is so powerful. And then you have the young families raising their kids, having little babies out in the wilderness. And then you got Haimo and Edna, who are this, this couple in their 60s who have adult children. And to see how in love they still are, and they, they kiss and hold hands, and they say, I love you every morning before they head out on the trap line. And it is it is my favorite thing I've ever seen. It's remarkable. It I mean, I, to, to, to a final comment on that show, because I've been thinking so much about it. I'm from, a, I'm, my parents got divorced and they were screaming at each other every single day when I was a little kid. So to see Haimo and Edna, it is like role models. It is beautiful. Yeah. So yeah, if you haven't seen The Last Alaskans, <clears throat> I paid for it on YouTube. And you can watch all the seasons on YouTube starting from the beginning. And we're not done with the fourth season yet. Yep. Unbelievable. I've enjoyed it too. And there's several other varieties. One of my favorite, I may loan you a CD on your way home. I have a... a Dick Prinicky. Have you ever heard of him? Richard Prinicky? Uh, yes, yes, yes. He went out there and he filmed on 16 millimeter, right? Yeah, and filmed himself. I haven't watched them all yet. I've, I've got a film of him making his cabin. Oh, cool. And uh, and I, I used to show it sometimes to my students. I taught American history, amongst other things. And they always end up with a, maybe after the exam, and there's a half a day before this. And and I would show them uh, Richard Prinicky and his, uh, his building his cabin. And they always sat just absolutely frozen watching it. And invariably, you see the guys sitting up straighter, like, you know, almost absorbing his masculinity. <laughs> and they'd go out of there, yeah, I like to do that. I like to do that. Me and I'm going to take my friends and we're going to go. And then one day as they went out and one of the girls stopped and looked at me and said, you know, they don't make men like that anymore. As soon as the guys were out the door. <laughs> and she may be right to some extent. Well, that is a great place to end. Uh, they don't make men like that anymore. So 
all you guys out there and gals that want to be equally as badass, let's uh, build stuff and have a wild life. Um, okay, well, I guess just in closing, um, do you sell any of your woodwork? Is there anything... Oh yeah, I, I have a, you have a website or anything. I don't even have a website. I barely can keep up with my local demand. But uh, if anybody needs anything, they can always get in touch there's with. There's nowhere me. to look at some pictures of it or anything. Uh, there's scattered pictures, but I have, my sons always promise they're going to do that, and they haven't done it yet. Okay, but if you, you need look, a website, yeah, look, look at, look, just find me on my my Facebook account. And well, what's your Facebook then? Just, just that uh, Roger Flincham. So Flincham is F-L-I-N-C-H-U-M. That's correct. And so you got some woodwork pictures on oh, yeah, there? there's always some stuff. In, in okay, cool. They were really impressive. I was blown away because you brought some to the fly fishing class that me, my stepdad, and girlfriend were doing. And I was like, wow, these are cool. And obviously, if they're at a three Michelin star restaurant, they're good. Well, it's, uh, I hope so. It's uh, One has to have a little structure to your life. I uh, appreciate you putting me in, in in on your podcast today, Philippe. Our newness nature. And, w- and I loved all the folk stuff. So, you know, t- maybe we'll have another podcast with more of those kind of folk stories about growing up, things you learned out here. You, you, one thing you can't do is make a teacher stop talking. So it's, it's, Perfect. <laughs> all righty. Later. Thank you. <laughs>